I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Well, uh, upcoming job loss, uh, or layoff or whatever, is forcing me to tighten my belt. Not to tighten it enough where I won't still go buy a, a new iPhone 12 this Friday because I'm an idiot. But uh, everything else, oh, I'm tightening it up. Tightening up the groceries. Tightening up uh, other spending on fun things for kids. And uh, random stuff like, oh, I'm just going to rent another movie for no reason. Uh, on Apple, whatever. But uh, nope, now that's got to get all wrapped up. And um, one of them is heat. I... Last winter, swimming in money, would just crank the heat up and bathe in the beautiful warm air as it caressed my skin. And I'd laugh to myself as I spin around in a circle, waving my arms around, not caring what I'm doing to the earth. Or how my hubris uh, plays out in the grand scheme of other people who are suffering and don't have heat. Nope. Just enjoyed myself. Well, now I got to tighten that up, too. So I got the heat down to almost nothing, and I'm basically walking around in a sweater that I've been living in for days, so that smells bad. And uh, my nose tip is cold. Oh, and shaving my face, as I've been complaining about the last couple episodes, uh, my lips and cheeks that normally have hair on them are just cold. I can feel, like, waves of cold air go across them that I haven't felt in years. Is that something I dealt with in the past? I mean, as I'm speaking right now, I can feel my breath from my mouth hitting my chin. It's weird, and I don't like it. So it makes me feel I'm probably more cold than I really am. But this is not suffering. As I said before, other people are suffering far worse than this, and uh, I'm just being a giant, whiny, whiny baby. Infantilizing myself. All because uh, of a layoff. Which, hopefully, I'll find something. Well, we're done. I got nothing else to say. Uh, I got my friend coming over tonight. We're going to finish... Uh, we're going to watch The Haunting of Hell House, which is our yearly tradition. And uh, that's pretty much it. I got no other news. Oh, well, the whole heat thing is because it's freezing outside and it's snowing. I don't know if I already said that. It has been snowing off and on for a couple days, but today's just been a nice, steady stream of snow covering everything and pissing me off. Because I gotta go out and grocery shop at some point, and I don't want to go out in the snow. It means I gotta like put on a jacket. I'm not ready for a jacket yet. See, these are not problems. But here I am complaining. Yeah, Christ. Let's just move on to the story. Some authors don't get a lot of love on Wikipedia. Uh, it goes to show that as time progresses, uh, 
all are slowly forgotten. People who were once of a certain amount of fame, a lesson over time, and only truly the best of the best stand out. Like uh, Henry VIII. No one's going to forget him. But, uh, you know, King George, who was uh, the monarch in England during the... uh, the Revolutionary War in America, uh, people don't really know that much about him, and I bet you as another generation or two go by, at least here in America, people just kind of forget about him altogether. Well, that's the case with R.H. Malden. Uh, he was a, a guy who wrote some ghost stories and made a name for himself in the time, but now no one's got anything to say about him. For example, it says in Wikipedia, he was born in the 19th of October, 1879, and died in August, 1951. The Dean of Wells was a prominent Anglican churchman, editor, classical and biblical scholar, and writer of ghost stories. And that's it. There's a small blurb about his life, like where he went to school, and that's kind of it. Poor guy's got nothing else. So, with that, let's dive into our story. The Thirteenth Tree by R.H. Malden. If, as I incline to think, architecture in general, and domestic architecture in particular, is the best expression of the characteristics of the period in which it belongs, uh, there would be a good deal to be said in favor of having been born soon after the year 1570. Late Tudor and early... This is already not sounding good. Late Tudor and early Jacobin houses always seem to me to uh, exhibit uh, the qualities which I admire most. <laughs> they are dignified and beautiful without conscious effort, uh, both inside uh, and out, and I find them extremely satisfying. This, I say to myself, is what a country house ought to be. They look as if they had grown from the soil as naturally as the trees in their parks. They are... Uh, as they were because men who planned them were solid, dignified, and sure of themselves. Their castles speak of violence and cruelty until they become an anachronism. Uh, when there are sights to be seen rather than uh, houses to live in, early Tudor houses have something, uh, some upstart about them. It's as if they just be suspected had their own, uh, their owners had their own... Moving on. The paladin palaces of the 18th century are not free from ostentation. They were meant to display the wealth and the taste of their owners, most of whom have probably made the grand tour. Despite their dignity and internal comfort, I can never feel that they belong to the English countryside, but the type of house which was built about 20 years on either side of 1600 always seemed to me to escape all these defects. (laughs) One of them was the scene of the story, which I am now going to tell. Oh, good. This is going somewhere. I thought it was just going to be about architecture. It is situated in one of the western counties. That is as much as I shall say about the geographical position, as I do not want to bring the Society for Spectral Investigations or any similar body about my ears of those of the neighborhood. It's starting to sound like Dan Aykroyd. I had never known the owner. When we were boys, our paths in life had diverged uh, for 30 years or more. Uh, We never met. We came across each other uh, accidentally in London. Both welcomed the opportunity of resuming an old friendship. When he asked uh, me to visit him, I was very glad to accept his invitation. Accordingly, a few weeks later, on a fine day early in October, I caught a train to Paddington for my journey westwards. Now, I'm familiar with Paddington. I've read Paddington Bear. I've uh, made an acquaintance 
uh, with the first 20 miles of the Great Western of the year 1890. And for some time after that, uh, it had been very familiar to me and had not traveled by that route for a good many years, was horrified to see how the Great Wen, as Coblet rudely called London, uh, spread over what I remembered a pleasant countryside. Uh, one of the few things she did not seem to be altered since I had passed that way uh, last was a building of really exceptional ugliness. Yeah, a hotel, I believe, close to the station at Slow. For I think the first time of my life, the sight of it gave me real pleasure. I had to change three times in the course of my journey, and it was, oh, gross, like your pants? It was nearly five o'clock when I got out trains out in the country station where my host met me. The light was falling then. Uh, we arrived at the house, and I could only see it was large and that it promised uh, to be very beautiful. I was introduced to my hostess and her two daughters, and after tea, the hall in front of a superb log fire in a large open fireplace, and my host took me to the smoking room. Uh, I had no idea you're such a territorial magnet, I said to him when we had settled down. Uh, I never expected to be, he said. Uh, my father was a parson of the north. And I became a solicitor in New York, as you know. We lived outside New York, uh, or just York, for the first 15 years after I was married. I knew of this place, uh, but never saw it until I succeeded. A distant cousin, for whom I saw uh, nearly seven years ago. Uh, he was unmarried and a queer-tempered old chap by all accounts. Perhaps the fact that he had never seen me influenced his choice of an heir. Is he still talking because the quotes haven't stopped? Oh, yeah, this is just a big, long speech he's making. The place is an entail, and there are several distant relations besides me. It's a curious thing, uh, but the property has never passed in the district mail line since Sir Robert Newton, whose portrait you'll see in the uh, dining room, uh, bought it and built the house. Uh, about the year 1602, I believe, he was a chief justice of Queen's Bench. His son was drowned in the pool in the garden. It does not exist now. It was filled in immediately afterwards. Uh, no one could ever understand how the boy got into it, or why, having got in, he couldn't get out. It's quite shallow. I believe he was more than a, more than a child. There was a daughter who married and brought her family here after her parents. About her son was killed at Naseby, leaving several daughters. And so it goes on. Either uh, there was no son or he hasn't lived to inherit. My immediate predecessor succeeded a childish, uh, childless uncle. I'm really having a tough time reading. It's kind of early in the day, too. I'm used to reading at night. Not like I do any better then, either. And I really was glad I never had a son, as I'm sure my wife would be nervous about bringing him here. Indeed, I had a mind admitting that I think it should be. Of course, the village people say there's a curse on the place, and they don't know why. I can't think that my respected ancestor, he is my ancestor, if by no means direct line, was likely to have done anything to provoke one. That is his giant speech. Certainly... When I looked at the portrait an hour or two later, I could detect nothing evil in it. 
I had suggested that Sir Robert had been shrewd and kindly person who would probably be as lenient on the bench as the law allowed him to be. No doubt he had passed many sentences in his time, which we should think harsh or even savage, but that would not have been uh, the view of his contemporaries. After dinner, uh, we sat in the library. It was a large room, completely lined with well-filled bookcases whose contents looked as if they would repay examination. Uh, there was no saying uh, that uh, may not have been wandered to such a place such as any oyster may contain a pearl of price. I asked whether uh, there was a catalog. Uh, not a very good one, was the answer. In fact... I'm not sure that I shan't spend a good part of the winter trying to improve it. Uh, you'd like to have a look around tomorrow, I expect. I got many of the books belong to Sir Robert. By the way, when you put in what you said, it been said in his bedroom. It's often used, but uh, we've just had to take up the floors in some of the rooms uh, near ours. Uh, dry rot. Uh, pretty chill. Pretty bad, too. But I think you might be comfortable there. No, there's no story about it that I've heard. We don't run into a ghost of any kind. We went upstairs soon afterwards, and while I was un undressing, I meditated upon a queer fatality which seemed to have pursued the family for 300 years. Was it, it been more than a series of odd, unfortunate coincidences? Uh, are there, or have there been, people who, some malign power which they would direct against their enemies? Or is it with a, somehow the power operative of their light time? Uh, did it exhaust itself after a period of time, uh, or not? I had finished undressing ah, before I had arrived at a satisfactory answer to any of these conundrums. Uh, when I was ready for bed, I went to the window and opened it and drew back the curtains, as was my custom. It was a clear night. There was a good deal of moon. My room was on the first floor at the back of the house, overlooking part of the garden, uh, which I had not seen before. Yeah, immediately below me lay a gravel terrace bounded on the far side by the stone balustrade. And on the other side of this, at the lower level and reached by the flight of steps, lay a small formal garden. Ah, in the middle was a circular stone basin where I hoped there might be a, uh, might be a fountain. Round the edge stood a number of dark eclipsed trees, uh, yews or cypresses, which I could tell not which. Uh, there were twelve of these, one at each corner and two in between. On the far side uh, was a low stone wall separating the garden from the park beyond. Uh, very white it looked in the moonlight, almost as if it were uh, newly built. Hmm. But in the middle there were a park, a dark patch, ivy or creeper, I suppose, and it made a clump on the copping, which then spread in a way that was almost suggested that the head and the arms of the person in the act of climbing the wall. I thought rather ugly and decided that if I were the owner, I would have it removed. Yeah, then I went to bed. For some reason, sleep did not come as quickly as usual, and I was visited with pictures, uh, half dreams and half waking, which belonged to the borderline of consciousness. Mine made two scenes. On the first, I found myself seated in a very large, old-fashioned traveling coach. Beside me was a figure very much wrapped up. I turned toward me once, as if about to speak, and I could recognize the original of the portrait in the dining room. Presently, we were brought to a standstill by a great concourse of people who seemed to be streaming uh, away from some spectacle. To put my head out the window, and yeah, see what it was, yeah, but drew it again, again quickly. A few yards in front of us was a gallows. There were four bodies dangling from the crossbeam. As I sat down, feeling as if I should be sick, my head poked into the window on the other side, and it belonged to a, a young man. His face seemed unnaturally pale. There was something else unusual about it, yeah, but I could not 
Take in what it was. The young man uh, said something in a low tone to my companion. And I could not catch the words, but they seemed to discern, uh, disconcert him very much. Next moment, the face had vanished and we began to move again. And I woke, found myself murmuring, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The second scene it was a churchyard by night. A funeral was taking place and I could see the bearers and the men with the torches and the priest. But there appeared to be no mourners unless I were one. Yeah, the coffin was lowered into the grave. Some bird of the night uh, gave a long and dolorous screech uh, very close overhead. Uh, at this I woke. Uh, I think there must have been a hunting owl or a, a, a nightjar outside my window. And as I did not wish for any repetition of such scenes, I got a book and read until I could feel confident that I should sleep more soundly. Uh, when I went to my window the next morning, I received a surprise. Uh, there was to be, as if you expected, it was the garden on which I had looked the night before, but there were no trees, and no pool, and I could see no growth upon the wall at the bottom. Yet I knew that I had seen those things, and that I had not been dreaming at the time. I decided to say nothing about it to my host. Uh, he knew whether the pool in which Sir Robert's son had been drowned had been, uh, but he did not. I noticed uh, that the wall between the garden and the park, it did not look as new as I thought it had the night before. It seemed to be the same age as the rest of the house. Nah, as he expected. Uh, it might, however, be due to the difference between daylight and moonlight. The day was fine, and as the neighborhood was new to me, most of the hours of the daylight were passed out of doors. After tea, we were sitting in the library, and I asked my host whether he knew why or by whom the curse had been laid upon Sir Robert's descendants. Well, oh God, is this going to be another big, long speech? Yes, it is. Great. Said, I'm not going to read it in the same voice. Said he, <laughs> there's a bit of a story about it, ah, but all I know is it is very incomplete and doesn't explain much. It seems that the old judge's time, there was a, a woman in the village who's reputed to be, a, to be a witch. Nothing very out of the way about that. In fact, you wouldn't have to look very far to find witches, or reputed ones, in the West Country. Villages uh, today. Uh, her name was Miriam Urch. Urch is quite a common name in these parts. But they say uh, she was at the bottom of it. But I don't know why she would have to have down, uh, been to, had a down on the Newtons. All right, whatever. And as nothing was ever proved against her, there was given a Christian burial in the churchyard. But her time came. You can see that is said to be her grave close to the north door. I expect it is. Village tradition is generally pretty accurate in such points. They are, are quite as sure whether she is always in it, though, even now. I believe the rector has had something to say uh, to old Job Dixon, the sexton, about its uh, untidiness uh, more than once. But he says it isn't his fault. Yeah, there are no other graves anywhere near it. And I don't think there will be as long as uh, there's a scrap of room anywhere else. No more was said on the topic that evening, and the hours after dinner passed pleasantly with a game of bridge and with my host his two daughters. They were all agreed that the games were games, and though due, throw, through due respect must be paid to the rules which govern them, they ought not to be transformed into hard and dismal forms. It was near midnight uh, before I found myself in my room, and when I was ready for bed, I admit that I hesitated for a moment before drawing back my curtains. Finally, curiosity prevailed. If there was anything to be seen, I might as well see it. 
seemed unlikely that any harm could come to me or to the family through me. I looked out, and the moon shone brilliantly, and there, beyond any possibility of mistake, uh, were the pool and the twelve trees. Take a sip of my coffee. Were there only twelve? My first impression was that there was more. That was absurd. I counted them again, and to make sure, and as I had thought, that there was at each corner, uh, with the two in between, and as soon as I looked at them all together, I got the impression that, uh, that there were more. But I could not have said where the additional one, I felt sure there was one, was. Nor even whether it had always been the same place, and I noticed that the ivy, or whatever it had been on the wall at the bottom, was gone. It might have been cleared away during the day, but I had the uncomfortable feeling that someone or something had come over and was dodging about behind the trees. If so, uh, with what intent? I began to feel an overpowering desire to go and investigate, yet I could hardly do that. The door leading to the terrace was doubtless locked and bolted, and I should be sure to disturb someone in getting it open. Uh, What could I say if I did? And I thought it was fine night for a stroll and that I always found pajamas uh, was most comfortable wear for nocturnal ramble. Hmm, I felt quite certain, I don't know why, that the trees and pool would be inevitable to anyone except myself. All the same. The desire to investigate more closely grew stronger and stronger and I have never seen or experienced hypnotism, but began to feel as if I imagined a hypnotic subject does. It seemed as if I were being dragged out by some force which was overpowering my own will, and that if I could not get the door open, I should have to jump from my first floor window. This would never do. As an antidote, I began to recite the first thing which came in my head, and happened to be the Battle of Lake Regilius from Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome. And uh, not for the first time, I blessed the wisdom of my mother, who made us learn quantities of poetry by heart as soon as uh, we could read. This particular poem had been my first major achievement in this line. I'd always been remained particularly distinct in my memory because the recitation had won two and a half crowns from a godfather. None of this is, this is, I don't have to be in the story at all. This is way too much detail around why he's singing this thing and thereby has enabled me to understand for the first time, last time in my life, what is meant by the possession of wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. Doesn't matter. Doesn't need to be in it. I am not quite sure whether I declaimed it aloud or not, but I know that I had only got to the end of the first stanza. By but the proud eyes when the squadron rides shall be Rome's whitest day. (laughs) I like the way I read that. Reading in the daytime is a whole different... Uh, I have a way different energy I'm bringing to this thing uh, than at night. When the spell, which I was quite sure had been malevolent, broke, and I was completely my own master again, I felt as one does when a motor car or a bicycle is skidded and a disaster in a ditch has been escaped ooh, by inches. I stopped at the window because I felt sure that something was going to happen. And after wait long, a figure appeared on the terrace. Where it had come from, I did not see. When it emerged from the shadow of the house, I saw that it was of a young man, not much more than a, than a boy. He seemed to be dressed as a, a young gentleman of quality. Should have been about the year 1600 or a little later. For some reason, this did not surprise me. I wondered whether I was spying upon a lover's meeting. Ah, the moonlight was all that could be desired. If the air were a little chilly, yeah, but there was no second figure to be seen. 
He went down the stone steps leading from the terrace uh, to the garden below and advanced to the edge of the pool. He stood there a minute, an hour or two, looking down to the water. Perhaps he was admiring the reflection of the moon when a very horrid thing happened. Uh, a vague black shape darted from behind one of the trees and flung itself upon him. It lay, it lay on top of him, and it obviously forced him into the pool face downwards with the intent to drown him. Oh, I tried to shout. Uh, what good would it have been done? I don't know. But no sound came. I thought of going to the rescue, but found myself unable to move. Of course, that would have been equally futile. Uh, could I have got there the next minute a heavy bank of cloud, which had been creeping up from the southwest, drove across the moon, and I could see no more. There was no sound to be heard. Oh, how long I remained looking out the window into the blackness and the silence I cannot say. Presently I found that I could move again. So, crept into bed. Hey, there's nothing more which you could have done. I think I slept more than might have been expected. Next morning, uh, when we went to the library after breakfast, I decided that I must make an effort to tell my host what I had seen. It did... Uh, need an effort, for I felt very unwilling to speak about it. I don't know why. I didn't think I was afraid of being laughed at. And if I were told that I had been dreaming, uh, I could only reply that I knew uh, that I had been awake. Somehow that made uh, me the more reluctant. However, I took the plunge. He listened uh, to my story very attentively and obviously took it seriously. When I had finished, she said, eh, eh, I think we know uh, not how poor young Newton came to his end, but who do you suppose it was that fell upon him? Uh, Miss Urch? Uh, if so, why? Yeah, neither of us had anything uh, more for a little while, and then I could see that, like Odysseus, on more than one occasion, he was this way and that, dividing his swift mind. And he said, yes, I think there's sufficient reason. Uh, wait for a bit. We were sitting beside the fireplace as the morning was chilly and we went to the other end of the room, climbed to the top of a short stepladder and took a smallish tin box from the end of the shelf. I saw that it was tied up with a string or tape and that there was a seal over the knot. There was a label attached on uh, which was written, you know, it looked like an early 18th century hand, uh, Sir Robert Newton Secreta, Secreta, all right, not to be opened without sufficient reason. Well, I said. Well, he replied. Don't you think there is now? Of course I agreed, and the string was cut. Ah, most important part of the contents was a notebook. The handwriting was Elizabethan, and a brief inspection satisfied us that the book had belonged to the judge. Oh, it was not exactly a diary. Oh, by no means were all the entries dated, and there did not seem to have been any attempt to produce a complete record of the period covered, which amounted to several years. Yeah, there was a number of rather uh, cryptic notes apparently relating to the cases which he tried, uh, whether there was uh, meant to direct his summoning up or was merely private memoranda was not easy to decide. Neither of us was an expert paleographer and decipherer. Uh, them all would obviously take some time, so we put the book aside for the moment. There were several letters from Lady Newton, ah, from which it was to be inferred that she had gone down to the West to supervise the completion of the furnishing of the new house while her husband was detained uh, by work in London. 
These told not an unfamiliar tale of dilatory workmen, of things ordered at a distance which were not delivered on the day appointed for, so forth. Uh, she also feared uh, that when all done, the original estimate would be very much exceeded. It would have been very interesting uh, had she mentioned the sums, but unfortunately, uh, she did not. These belonged to the years 1599-1600, as one of them referred to the good effect produced by, quote, your visit. It would uh, appear that the judge had made an excursion to the scene of action to see whether he could uh, expect expedite matters and alleviate some of his wife's troubles. Uh, how many more pages of this do we have? <laughs> kind of a lot. <laughs> God damn it. I'm bored. I'm just going to say it. Uh, underneath there was a largest sheet of paper which had been folded more than once. Uh, this proved to be a plan of the house and gardens, obviously by a professional hand. How will you not be surprised to hear that in the middle of the small garden below the terrace was a circle of considerable size, which obviously indicated a pool. Hmm. At the distance, some yards were twelve dots at regular intervals, forming a square to show where it was intended to place the statues or plant trees or something of the sort. The plan itself did not state what form or ornament the architect had in mind, but I was in a position to say trees, not statues. There's only one more paper. It's merely a list of about seven, about a hundred names, presumably those of the inhabitants of the village, who were all the judge's tenants. This was dated May 7th, 1603, which my host thought that must have been very soon after Sir Robin had come to reside permanently in his new home. It suggested that he began to devote himself seriously to the duties of the country gentleman. The name of the Miriam Orch, Orch appeared among them. It was marked with an asterisk that there was nothing noting or relating uh, to her to be found. He must, uh, she must have lived alone, as the names were obviously arranged according to their households and there were no other urches in the village. Beyond establishing trustworthiness of tradition up to a point, he did not get us much further. Still, it was something to know that, which or not, she really had existed and that there did seem to have been some special point of contact, however small, between her and the judge. At this moment, lunch was announced, so our investigation was suspended. Mm -hmm. When we felt disposed to resume our researches, I suggested that it might be worthwhile to ask the rector uh, for permission to examine the register of burials at the church. Supposing it to be in existence, so we must have, so much was destroyed wantonly during the Commonwealth period, it was not uncommon uh, to find no records prior to 1662. Here, however, we were in luck. The registers were complete from 1558 onwards. May 7th, 1603 was our terminus aquo, aquio, whatever. And we found the entry of the burial, Miriam Urch, on November 4th of that year. She had died on October 31st. Ooh, and there's an asterisk in the margin at the footnote of the page. We thought another hand, but could not be sure. Under ye yew tree by ye north door. There was only note appended to the, to the entry of the volume. It might be presumed that her estate was not sufficient to provide a headstone for the grave so that no one else uh, was prepared to bear the expense. Also, that somebody, whether at the time or afterwards, was anxious that the site should not be forgotten. We turned on 
Yeah, the entries are few as the population of the village was small. We found a burial of Philip Newton, aged 19 years, on November 7, 1604. He had died three days before. Hmm, I said. Coincidences do happen. This sees a, a little too close, not to have been arranged. We know, more or less, how it was done. But I wonder why. There must be a story of some kind behind it. Our only remaining source of information was the judge's notebook, so we turned to that. Uh, the next day was so wet that there was nothing to distract us. Uh, so we became familiar with his hand, and we found that we could read most of it uh, without much uh, difficulty. And uh, the impression, this is also not necessary, the impression of which we had formed in our first cursory inspection was confirmed. There was a number of disconnected memoranda relating to a variety of matters. Some were dated, but not all. They seem to cover the last 10 or 12 years of his term upon the bench. Some were concerned with the cases which he had heard, others with purely domestic matters. Uh, some were too short to be fully intelligible. It looked as if it had been Sir Robert's practice to put down from time to time whatever happened to be passing through his mind. Uh, not necessarily every day. Without attempting to keep a systematic diary, one of the longest entries was a very noble prayer, apparently his own composition, that he might be enabled to do justice in the fear of God and with no fear of man. Shortly after, eh, there was a prayer for forgiveness of any failure, and eh, it's clear that he had a conscientious judge and set himself a, a high standard. Interesting, as much as this was, it was not relevant to the immediate purpose. Uh, we got almost to the last page before we came upon anything uh, which threw any light on the subject of the investigation. How many more pages do I have? Uh, I got one more. The last case which he heard before his retirement, or at any rate, the last which he was on any record, was of the four men for highway robbery committed on Hunslow Heath. Their names were given. Ugh, Robert Houston, William Parrott, Edward Backhouse, and George Urch. The first three were bracketed together with the words, Taken Red-Handed, written against them. But for some reason, the case against George Urch seemed to have been less clear. His name was followed by a few jottings. Taken next day. No, no good alibi. Identified an oath. Then followed two or three lines which were quite uh, illegible. Below them, the words condemned with others. The only other entries were purely personal after this trial, but at the interval, which is impossible to say, both his uh, health and his spirit seemed to have been affected. Uh, twice, he recorded, kept my chamber all day. Uh, once he had sent for the apothecary, uh, to whom he had paid two shillings and two sixpence, another entry showed that he had paid a visit to the rector, S. Margaret Winchester. Uh, this ended with the word comforted, from which it would appear that whether his trouble was uh, not entirely physical, uh, at this time his wife and family must have been uh, elsewhere, as he spoke of arranging for his man, whose name was Edward Hylar, to lie in the chamber next to mine. More than once had E.H. to sit with me in the parlor. It was a reasonable guess that George Burp Urch, the highwayman, was the son of Miriam Urch. Sorry, I'm getting a lot of alerts. Eh, it's, you know, daytime, not nighttime. 
Eh, I get a little, I get, I get a lot of action. And then there was within their knowledge Sir Robert sent him to his death. Whether justly or not would be perhaps concerned with her closely, and the judge's own jotting suggested that there might have been a miscarriage of justice, involuntary, on his part. She seemed to have her revenge, in the strictest sense of the word, but she did not live to see it. We return to the churchyard. Uh, traditions called her grave it could be identified without difficulty, as there were no others near it, but there was no vestige of any, uh, of any yew tree. There was, however, a shallow depression, roughly circular and of considerable extent, close to it. We had recourse to the rector again, not uh, without apologies. He was able to tell us that uh, he believed that there had been a tree there, and that there were one or two old people living in the place who might remember something about it. He promised to ascertain uh, what he could, and added that, while he did not wish to appear discourteous, uh, he thought he would be more likely to be successful if he pursued the investigations alone. Ugh. So wordy to get to the point. He had some information for us the next day. There had been a yew tree there, which had been blown down in a terrible storm not long after Victoria became queen. It was uh, more than two hundred, that's with a apostrophe, U-N-D-E-R-D, year old. But... It were a good riddance. No explanation of this was forthcoming. Would Rector had roots grubbed and taken away and burned. When the men got under there, it was girt twad setten. And he spit at they who delish, query devilishly, that they were frit and run for the Rector. Uh, when they come back and were gone, never zaw with the Z no more. Rector came back with him. Uh, some things were found bits of bone and such like rector he wrapped up so that they took they away to burn uh, this from the very ancient man whose father had been employed on the work he had heard his father and mother talking about it since they if they thought he was asleep there had been more said but that was all that he could remember now, I conjectured that the storm was that of the January 6th to 7th, 1839, which seems to have been a little less violent than its better-known forerunner of November 1703. It came from the northwest, uh, inter Allah, and it did uh, considerable damage to Bishop Longley's new place in Ripon, palace at Ripon. The church warden's accounts were available and showed considerable expenditure on repairs of the church. Oh, my God, so they're finding a record of the storm and the repairs. We don't really need to read that, do we? Nature not specified in the church yet of February and March of the year. Well, I said, it's about as much as we're ever likely to know. I doubt whether Mrs. Urch could do any more mischief. If she'd like to give a reputation of original performance, uh, now and again, I expect the tree, which should have been quite a small one in her time, was necessary somehow. There seemed to be unaccountable but very rigid rules governing these things. Perhaps we shall understand them better someday. Uh, you may be right, said Philipson. I don't think I have mentioned his name before. He actually put that in the story. Oh, God. <laughs> you didn't need to put that in the story. Now I come to think of it, there hadn't been a direct male heir at any time since 1839 for her to try her hand on. All the same, I wonder. I was not much surprised to hear a few months later that Mr. Philipson uh, thought the house was far too expensive and that he was conveying it to the National Trust and going to live elsewhere. 
I believe that it is uninhabited now, so that if Mrs. Urch ever returns to it, no one will be any the wiser or the worse. I have so uh, heard that the trustees would like to restore the sunken garden, according to the plan found amongst Sir Robert's papers. Uh, but Mr. Phillipson is opposed to this, and while they think him rather unreasonable, they feel bound to respect his wishes. Well, that was just about the dumbest thing I ever read. Uh... Let's try to find something positive in this. What was good about this story? Well, you had one uh, moderately creepy part where he goes to the window and he sees the shape of some little boy or whatever going to the pool that's not supposed to be there and then a shadowy figure going out and drowning him. Yeah, so that was good. That made it kind of creepy. What sucks about it? Uh, pretty much all the rest of the book. As soon as you have that creepy part, it's filled up with him reciting poetry so that he doesn't get, uh, I don't know, taken over by some kind of trance. Then he explains why he learned the poetry, what he learned the poetry from, how much money did he get as a reward for learning it as a little kid. And then after that, they go into documentation. Maybe solving a mystery through reading paperwork is exciting to some people, but it wasn't exciting to me. Uh, what did we learn? We learned that people's idea of what was scary back then was far different than us. Or maybe they, whereas I get bored reading something like that, they were terrified by it. Oh, this is mundane. And their skin starts to goose pimple up and the hair on the back of their neck stands up. I don't know, whatever the deal is, but I also learned that uh, if I'm recording early enough in the day, I uh, have a tough time reading. I was slipping up on words all over the damn place. Doesn't help that I'm not reading this on my Kindle, and I'm reading it on a paper book with the smallest font in the world. All right, I'm done complaining. Well, with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.